All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles, if you will, and turn to Genesis chapter 1. And this morning we continue our series entitled, In His Image. Genesis chapter 1. If you've hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Back up quite a bit. Do you know that there are 10 words in the Bible that refute every false philosophy in our world today? 10 words. These 10 words are associated with our understanding of our history as Christians. And today there is a, of course, a significant diminished understanding of history in the United States of America. Personal history, national, even spiritual, as one is a Christian, is on the decline. I think of an article that I read back in 2015, the headline read, How much U.S. history do Americans actually know? This was from Smithsonian, the magazine. The image should be on the screen behind me. Less than you think. As the pollster went on to say, on Texas Tech University, they went around and they questioned the student body there at the college and asked three questions. Who won the Civil War? Who was the vice president? And who did we gain our independence from? Some answered, the ranges from the South for the first answer, all the way to, ha- to the point that many of them said, I have no idea for all three. No clue. No clue who we fought in the Civil War. No clue who our vice president was at that time. No clue in who we gained our independent from. But when asked about Jersey Shore, they could name all the stars that were involved in that show. When they were asked about Brad Pitt's marital status, all of them were, were aware of what Brad Pitt was going through at the time. Though we have mastered pop culture, we have lost our understanding of history. We no longer understand the history of the United States of America. We don't understand our personal history as individuals. We don't understand our history as Christians. And as a result, we have a tendency to lose our identity in that lack of understanding. And that's why an understanding of history is so important. That article went on to say that it wasn't only confined to college students. In 2008, a study was taken of 2,500 Americans and found that only half of the adults in that study could name the three branches of our government. In 2014, once again, another study was taken and only 18% of 8th graders were proficient or above average in U.S. history, and only 23% in social civics. Fast forward to 2023, and an article came out in USA News. A national concern, the headline read, student scores decline on U.S. history and civics. And the article went on to say, young people are more active in politics than ever, but their knowledge of history and government continues to decline. As the writer went on to say, she stated that politics are more divisive than ever. America is torn by social issues involving race, gender, and wealth. 
Social media is a hotbed of impassioned opinions. Youth are more involved. They're voting in greater numbers. And they are more visible as advocates and activists than ever before. But the youngest generations seems to know less and less about the history of our government. Eighth grader students continued a decade-long score decline. Now, we talked about them in 2015. It's still declining today. On, a, on the National U.S. History Assessment Test and posted their first ever decline in scores on a national civics assessment, according to the results released Wednesday of that week by the National Center of Education and Statistics. One spokesman for that committee stated, these data points are of national concern. A well-rounded education includes a grounding in the democratic principles, she said. These assessment challenges students to show their knowledge and skill as they prepare to become engaged citizens in democracy. Too many students are struggling to understand and explain the impact of civic participation and how government works and the historical significance of events. This is concerning, quite honestly, I was shocked. I don't know why you're shocked. We've been seeing this decline for over a decade. And because of this, now I believe this reluctance to investigate and to discover and to understand history is intentional. I believe it's intentional. I believe that by erasing history, you can redefine the future. You can create the social constructs. You can rewrite history to show and to support the need for progressive movement in many different areas. Again, the old saying is still true. If you do not learn from history, you are doomed to repeat it. But we understand that's happening around us, in the world around us. But what about us as Christians? Because today many Christians struggle with their personal identity in Jesus Christ. And the beginning of that struggle, the beginning of the lack of understanding, goes back to the lack of their knowledge and understanding of their history in Christianity. Knowing that the Christian faith didn't start when Jesus first came into the world 2,000 years ago, that that event was rooted from the very beginning of all creation and purposed to happen exactly as God designed it to happen. This is why I'm grieved when I hear more and more Christians believing that the Old Testament is irrelevant for us today. I think that's a sad state of affairs because understanding the New Testament requires us to understanding the foundation in which it's built upon, and that is the Old Testament. Understanding the history of Israel, understanding the very first 11 chapters of Genesis specifically, as Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis has stated often that the beginning of a healthy Christian life is a full understanding of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and that's what we're diving into together. Knowing these chapters will allow us to once again rediscover our identity in Christ even though Christ wouldn't happen for 2,000 years later after the point of creation. So this morning, I'd like to bring your attention to the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
and 10 words that will change the world forever if we simply would believe them. Now, this isn't the first time this nation has lost their understanding of history. It happened in the Bible. But let's begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me read that again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This verse right here that we so easily skim by as we begin the reading of the book of Genesis answers so many questions that are currently plaguing people today. Why am I here? Who am I? What is the meaning and purpose of life? All of these questions are rooted in the understanding of these ten words. The book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, gives us the revelation, the insight, the answers to those questions. But it all starts here. But as I said just a moment ago, there was a period of time in the Bible that the children of Israel lost their sense of history. Notice what uh, Judges 2.10 says. When all the generations had been gathered to their fathers, had died, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the works which he had done for Israel. They haven't experienced it for themselves. They have forgotten the things that God has done on their behalf. Their understanding of history has been diminished. And notice what the very next two verses state. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now this is no coincidence Because this generation had forgotten their history, they fell into sin that could have been easily avoided, provoking God, causing anger in God for their worship of other gods. We have a generation today that not only doesn't know the founding of America and simply believes the sound bites that they acquire through TikTok and other social media outlets. They don't understand why America became the nation that it became. What was the purpose of the founding fathers, the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence? But more importantly, Christians, in a large part, have forgotten our history in God. We've forgotten what God has done. We seem to be a generation kind of wandering and lost and looking for God to do in our generation what He has done in the past. See, my understanding of the past gives me the hope that if God did it then, He can do it again. Let me say that again. If God did it then, God can do it again. And that's what I'm looking forward to. 
But many who absolutely dismiss or divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament would forget those things. Would forget that God sent Jonah into Nineveh for the purpose of calling them to repentance. And unbeknownst to Jonah, they responded, correct? To the point where he did what any good prophet would do, he went into the wilderness and pouted. Because he didn't want them to repent. If God can do it for them, he can do it again, right? This is why I never give up hope. This is why I'm always optimistic. This is why I'm always looking for God to do great things. But we need to understand our history if we're going to understand our identity in Christ today. Does that make sense? The first 11 chapters will give us a foundation to that history. And I'm hoping that as we go through it together, it whets your appetite to further explore the Old Testament, to read the books of poetry, the books of wisdom, to read the minor and major prophets. The minor prophets are full of parallels that speak to our current society today. As Israel went into a post-God era for a little while, as they abandoned him in so many ways, We can see parallels between them and us today. So much of the Old Testament is so valuable for us today. Understanding the book of Leviticus. Now, it's funny because a lot of times when people start their, you know, New Year's Bible reading plan, okay, they get through, you know, Genesis and Exodus and then things start slowing down a little bit when they hit Leviticus, they're like, Pastor, it's just so hard. I, don't, I can't look at meat the same way again, you know. But do you understand, understanding the book of Leviticus opens your eyes to the reality of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It shows us the significance of the atonement that he provided for us through the shedding of his blood. Reiterated in the book of Hebrews over and over and over and over again. The Old Testament is imperative, and this is a great time to jump into it as we're getting into a new year. So continue, persevere, work through Leviticus. As you get into Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then you come to Joshua, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. And you keep moving through the Kings and the Chronicles. Esther and Ruth, and your eyes are open to the amazing works of God. And you come to the conclusion when it's all said and done and you read those last few verses of the Italian prophet Malachi, I'm talking about Malachi, of course, (laughs) and you realize if God did it then, God can do it again. And you'll have a much better understanding of who you are. I like what one wrote when he said, the great fundamental questions of life's purpose and meaning are answered in this book, the book of Genesis. The big questions in life, where did I come from? Why am I here? What is the purpose and meaning of life? Where am I going? The primary purpose of Genesis is to reveal God to us. And I think this is especially important in the times which we are currently living. Understanding of history leads to an understanding of who we are in Christ. Because the abandonment of history 
doesn't simply leave us with a vacuum. Something must consume or fill that space. And many agendas have been launched over the last five years trying to rewrite history here in our nation. And as a result, rewriting history then justifies some of the progressive movements that we see implemented today. For example, our nation was built on the backs of slaves in 1619. That was the true beginning of the United States, according to these new historians that aren't historians at all, but mere reporters from various media outlets who have been so reliable in every other aspect of reporting and journalism. Rewriting history justifies the decisions made today that carries us and creates our future going forward. But the Old Testament is solidified for us. It is written. And as we read it, we understand who God is throughout every culture that Christianity has been placed within. And we understand that God is greater than any local government, national government that there is. That the king is on high. And that you and I are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And our home is heaven. We're merely passing through. This is a layover. But in this layover that we have, the decisions we make today don't only affect us today. Those things that we sow, we reap, of course. But it also reverberates throughout the course of eternity. And it all begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice with me that the statement that opens the Bible doesn't presume, I mean, it doesn't, there isn't a conjecture, there isn't a, um, a doubt, it presumes the existence of God. In the beginning, God, def- that's it, right? Settled. God existed and all that we see around us has been created by Him. This is not a verse that we can debate over from a biblical point of view. In the beginning, God I love when a book opens up and just tells me right from the very beginning what it's all about. You don't have to get 15 chapters into realizing it. You don't want to read it in the first place. The book tells me from the very beginning that this book is all about God. And it starts with Him creating all things. So in these words together, these 10 words that were some found so significant that when Edgar Mitchell, the LEM pilot of Apollo 14, landed on the moon, he buried this verse along with a Bible on the moon, and this verse was translated into 16 different languages. This is how important that he felt that this verse was, to take it to the moon and back with him. In these 10 words, do you realize that it refutes atheism, pantheism, polytheism, materialism, dualism, humanism, and evolutionism? 10 words. 10 words in the brilliance of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit refute the philosophies that dominate our culture today. That dominate our culture today. As the late great Dr. Henry Morris said, 
Actually, all such false philosophies are merely different ways of expressing the same unbelief in God. The reason that this verse refutes the false prophecy of the false philosophies of today is simply because the false philosophies of today have been created by the ruler of this world, Satan himself. Wherever God substantiates truth, you can be guaranteed that Satan's going to come along and challenge it with a lie. You can be guaranteed of that. That's why it is so brilliant that in these 10 words, God silences the philosophies of this world. That's the brilliance of this verse. I want to look at five words with you together in this verse, though all are important. And let's begin with the introduction to our God. The word Elohim is used here in the Hebrew, and it's a very generic term. It's God. It's used throughout the New Testament. But the I am ending states and gives us the understanding that this is in a plural form. That plurality, some have dismissed as simply God talking about himself again in a majestic way or amongst many gods or amongst the hosts of heaven. But more likely it is referring to the triune nature of our God. One in three persons. One God, but in plural form, gives us the understanding and the hint towards the doctrine of the Trinity. Though this doesn't substantiate that doctrine completely, that is done as the revelation of the word continues. But from the very beginning, the nature of God is described for us. And it's described for us in His majesty and omnipotence. Notice with me that the psalmist wrote concerning and using this word, For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. As this word is used throughout the New Testament, understand that this is God beginning to reveal himself to his creation. Beginning to show himself beginning to allow his creation to understand from a finite position an infinite God. Today in our understanding or our desire to understand God, we often lead or lean on our experiences with God to define the nature and the character of God. Let me say that again. Today we often lean on our own personal experiences, our personal interactions with God, And in and through those experiences and interactions, we determine the nature and the character of God. Now, that can be misleading. In our pragmatic society, in our postmodern mindsets, we can judge the character of God incorrectly. Or more specifically, we can try to determine the character of God through those experiences and misinterpret them and therefore misunderstand the actual nature of God. For example, if I pray and I don't get what I pray for, it is easy for me to dismiss the understanding of God. It's easy for me to say, well, then God must not exist. See, this is where these things can become misleading. 
if things don't go the way we want them to go. And this is the way many people interact with God. We can conclude that God doesn't love us, that He doesn't care for us, that He's silent to us, that He's distant and unaware of what we go through each and every day. But is that true? Or is that simply an interpretation of my personal circumstances? And those, that interpretation is incorrect. Because the Bible says that God does love us and shown us that love through the sending of His only begotten Son. The Bible says that He, he, he invites us to cast our cares upon Him for He cares for you. The Bible tells us that He has every tear that we've ever cried in a bottle. Every hair on our head numbered. Me, he's subtracting quickly. (laughs) But he knows us that intimately. David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Who am I that you should be mindful of man? He said. And yet he is. We need to get away from simply determining God's character, God's nature, God's affection for us simply based on our uh, experiences and feelings alone. And we need to get back to the assurance of the Word of God for us to stand in those times of storm and trouble and say, even though I am going through what I am going for through, God is good. God is great. God made chocolate cake. No, just felt like it was going to flow. Do you see where I'm going? So as he begins to reveal himself, he's saying, I am one, but I am in triune nature. I'm more. For I am one in the Father, the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. God's special revelation to us is his word. Is his word to us. If you want to know about God, you can find him right here in the 66 books of the Bible. And when your feelings contradict scripture, may I encourage you. May I encourage you at that moment instead of abandoning faith, may I ask you to embrace faith. And allow that embracement of faith to put your feelings in their place. May I ask you to, in your embracement of faith in God's word, put your feelings in the place. Hey, we all feel depressed at times. We all feel down at times. We all feel disappointed at times. Hey, I've prayed many times and God has said no or done something different. And at the moment in time, I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. It didn't work according to my plans that I emailed him. And then later on in life, I go look back and I say, I get it now, God. Now I understand. Now I get what you're doing. I get it. I was adopted from a place in Evanston called The Cradle. Okay? And someone adopted uh, a son, I believe, just prior to my adoption, a famous man named Bob Hope. I could have been Eric Hope, okay? Instead, I was adopted by a couple that lived in Elk Grove Village. 
My mom at that time was already struggling with alcohol. They lied to the judge to allow the adoption to go through. I didn't understand what God was doing until a 16-year-old boy ended up on a porch receiving Jesus Christ and attending a church in that town that is still my home church after 27, almost 40 years. Next year will be 40 years. See, God knew what he was doing the whole time. I didn't. It was painful. It was difficult. I didn't get it. I, I did feel betrayed at times. I could have been Eric Hope, okay, entertaining the troops around the world. Hey, a funny thing happened to me on the way to church this morning, you know. Some of you probably, Bob who? He was a funny guy. But God knew what he was doing, and now I'm thankful that that adoption to Bob Hope didn't occur. Because now I'm a child of God. I got to serve God in capacities I never thought I'd be able to serve him. And I get to know all of you wonderful people. And I mean that sincerely. No, not really. No, I do. <laughs> I do. Our understanding of God begins with his words. Notice the second word with me, and it's the word created. God created the word bara in the Hebrew. It means that God created something from nothing. The great quandary of evolution is where did it all begin? Where did it all begin? How did it all start? Where did matter come from? A big bang? Well, where did the big bang come from? And as you continue going back and asking the, the question, finally they have to rest in a position called materialism, which believes that matter always existed. But we know that not to be true. God says that he created all things, and as we move forward in Genesis 1, we'll find that he spoke everything into existence. He created something out of nothing. And this concept was even recorded in the New Testament in Romans 4.17, as Paul wrote, As it is written, I have made you a father to, of many nations, in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls things which do not exist as though they did. Meaning, he created something out of nothing. God borrowed. He created all things. Out of nothing. The Hebrew writer reiterates this point in Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Notice that. God spoke everything into existence. And the beginning of that creation was heaven's. And what he means by this is the space in which encompasses and encloses all things, the universe. Now, the fourth day, he comes to the stars and the planets. Now he's just simply creating the space that will be filled. The space in which will be filled. And that begins with the creation of the earth. It seems, however, that... The essential meaning of the word here for heaven corresponds to our modern term space. 
such as when we speak of the universe as the universe of space and time, meaning that the universe has limitations, that it is a created thing. The actual space that the stars and the planets are all hung within was created by God here at this moment. And the beginning of that was the creation of earth. Notice with me our next word together. And this simply means, according to Dr. Henry Morris, the matter in which God used to create all things. God brought all of these things into existence at this moment. This very matter in the book of the New Testament, Colossians says, Jesus holds all this matter together. Very interesting. There was no doubt in the mind of these individuals that God created all things and encapsulate it all and to cap it off, he says, in the beginning. Now, this is absolutely a problem for those who are in physics. The late, great Stephen Hawkins, before dying, came out with a paper that shocked the world. He stated that time had a beginning. That time had a beginning. That time began with God and the creation process. God occupies a dimension of eternity. Finite time was created at the beginning of this process. And in the beginning, God created these things. That time started and wasn't always permanently existing. It is interesting that we are just catching up to God in the creation process, in our understanding. That's what science is all about. Science isn't meant to take us farther away from God. Science is meant to help us discover the things of God. The greatest scientists that began the fundamental uh, process of science were all Christians, believing in God. You see, there's a concept today that the only way that you can be an intellectual, intelligent person in our world today is by the abandonment of God. Do you know it's so bad in Oxford University right now that you can't even use the word mind? Let me repeat that. This understanding of man's existence and creation has been so distorted that the word mind is no longer permitted because in the understanding of what is known as dualism when it concerns the creation of the human being, we believe that the body, the autonomy of the body, is separate from the immaterial mind in which we have, allowing for the possibility of a soul. But secular humanists are not dualistic when it comes to this point. They're what's called a monist. They believe that the mind and brain are all one and the same thing. And therefore, to use the word mind, you are acknowledging that you're more than just a material substance. That there's something unique about you. That there's something immaterial about you, which would then lead them, if they're willing to explore the concepts of metaphysics, it would lead them to ask the question, 
I can't be a naturalist any longer if I acknowledge that there's something immaterial about man that would lead to a supernatural understanding. And yet, from the very beginning, God said that. Science is simply trying to catch up with God's infinite wisdom. The great Dr. Stephen Meyer, the um, microbiologist, in his pursuit of science, discovered more and more as he looked at the just the incredible nature of the, of the cell, of a cell, of a human being, the, me, the mechanical nature of it, the engineering of it. It was so vastly superior to Darwin's understanding of pure simplicity within the cell. And Dr. Stephen Myers, a Christian, who was recently interviewed by Joe Rogan, if you have an opportunity, I want you to try to find that video because Stephen Myers does a brilliant job of witnessing to him for Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. I think that God, Jesus, is going after Joe Rogan. He has had one guest after another sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Wouldn't that send ripples through the world if Joe Rogan all of a sudden became a Christian? Hey, right? If God did it then, he can do it again. It's amazing to me. Stephen Myers beautifully articulates this. And, and, and you, the look on Joe Rogan's face was, he, he had nowhere to go. He didn't want to. I don't think he was fighting it anymore. I think he was literally trying to comprehend and digest everything that Dr. Stephen Myers was saying. And Stephen Myers has been a champion now, showing that we could not have been a product of an evolutionary process. This term, in the beginning, is found in John 1.1 also, which we'll look at in just a moment. But I want to read this to you in closing. Dr. Henry Morris is someone I'm going to quote many times within our series through the first 11 chapters. He wrote a book called The Genesis Record. He is now home with the Lord. His son has taken over his ministry. But this book is a gem, the Genesis record. It combines science and theology together. And he explains things in such beautiful layman's terms that anyone can understand it. If you don't have this book, may I encourage you to pick one up in whatever form you prefer. That is Kindle, iPad, or a hard copy. May I encourage hard copies? Can I encourage you for 2024 to, to start collecting books again? Because you know, you know, I know they would never mess electronically with written things, would they? I mean, AI would never, ever try to augment, supplement, or delete from the Word of God, would it? Never. Okay, I can't be any more sarcastic than that. I'm laying on so thick right now. Let's get back to paper books. I like what he says. Genesis 1.1 can legitimately and incisively be paraphrased as follows. Let me read it to you. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. As noted earlier, the name Elohim 
suggests, of course, now his commentary. The name Elohim suggests that God is both one God, yet more than one. Though it does not specify that God is a trinity, the fact that uh, he produced creativity of his creation, activity, excuse me, was a tri-universe, does at least strongly suggest the possibility. A trinity or tri-unity is not the same as a triad in which there are three distinct separate components comprising of a system, but rather a continuum in which each component itself consists and coincides with the whole. That is, the universe is not part of space, part time, and part matter, but rather all space, all time, all matter, and so is a true tri-unity. Sorry for that. It was a little bit of a detailed explanation. I'll let you take a picture of that if you want to take it for your notes. But notice, let me read this again for you. This is the way Genesis 1-1 can be uh, paraphrased. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. Called into existence. Well, I can't leave you there. Let me take you to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Because John tells us that it was Jesus who was part of and the initiator of this creation process. In the beginning was the Word. There is that phrase again. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. The early Christians understood this in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he, this is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. If we want to understand God, we look to his word. If we want to see God, we look to Jesus. Encapsulated in the four Gospels, this is the one in whom we should look to, to see God face to face. For Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, a lot of deep stuff this morning, but in your brilliance and your majestic nature, Father, in 10 words, you have silenced your critics. In 10 words, you have confronted and refuted each of the seven false philosophies that dominate our world today. And Father, we know why. Because Jesus told us that Satan has come to steal lie, and destroy. And so, Father, we pray, because Jesus then went on to say, but I have come to destroy the works of the devil. I pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you and understand your great love for them, maybe they find themselves in circumstances that they never expected or anticipated. 
Maybe things haven't gone the way they would have hoped for. Maybe they feel that you have let them down and you are distant from them. Please show them this morning how much you do love them and sent Jesus for them. Through Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship with you, Father, once again. And Father, in that relationship, know all of our problems won't simply go away, but you'll be with us in and through them. You'll give us a peace that surpasses understanding. You'll give us a hope that is everlasting. You'll, you'll show us a love that is unconditional. And Father, a joy that allows us to rise above the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Father, there are many things this side of heaven that we won't fully understand. But Lord, we know that you are good. And we know that we are called according to you. And those who are called according to you and love you, all things work together for good. And Father, we can be sure of that, even though we don't understand it sometimes. But it all begins with our understanding of who we are in you with these 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song.